every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this is my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the story and where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. And talking with me tonight is James Roca, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Fresno State. Uh, with a focus on ethics and political, legal, and pop culture philosophy. Uh, He's published on such diverse genre properties as Firefly, Mr. Robot, Veronica Mars, Psych, and The Wire. I'm particularly excited about Psych. Not many people, (laughs) I I don't think there's a lot of academic study of Psych out there, so that thrills me. Uh, And he's currently working uh, with his wife. He's currently collaborating with his wife, Mona, on an anarchist analysis of Joss Whedon's TV shows. That is fascinating james thank you so much for joining me how's it going great and and thank you very much paul for having me i'm i'm really excited to talk to you about these episodes and just get into discussing buffy yeah this is uh we got some good ones tonight (laughs) you uh you signed up for the right episodes my friend so why don't we uh why don't you just give me and my listeners a little brief history on your history with buffy how'd you first discover the show and what uh, what drew you to it, and why did you decide to make it part of your academic study? So for me, I, I, I kind of came to Buffy more from an academic perspective first. I, that I did not get to watch the show while it was first airing. I, I heard about it, and I heard that people were writing academic articles about it. And, I, and as an academic, I've always been very interested in pop culture, and people kept saying that, that Buffy was just such an intelligent show, that it had so many interesting angles to it so i went back and and watched the you know the first few episodes and i was immediately just so excited about it that that i went out and 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 not just bought every episode of buffy but started buying everything that joss whedon had ever done and so now i'm i'm you know just a big fan of the shows but also i feel like this is the, the of the things i get to write this stuff is the most fun stuff i get to write I've gotten to teach a couple of classes on, on Joss Whedon's works, and, and I just in, enjoy talking about this stuff and, and watching it over again, and, and you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it on this podcast. That's awesome. You said you've taught some classes on it. How do your students respond to this subject matter? The, the great thing is that when I teach classes on Whedon, they are very self-selected, and the students come in knowing so much more than I do about the shows. Uh, 
I had two students who I swear had every show of Angel memorized and everything <laughs> I brought up. They would they would have counterexamples ready and they'd argue with me about what happened on a different episode. And it was just it's just fantastic teaching these things because I, I can't imagine anything that students are more excited about when they sign up for these classes. <laughs> That is so awesome. Uh, those two students, uh, you need to send them my direction because eventually I'm going to be doing Angel the series as well. And I, I, not many people have signed up for Angel so far. There's still a lot of openings in my Angel series. So and there's some fantastic episodes of Angel. I, I just love the the final season of Angel. That, yeah. That's something I just can't stop watching. Yeah, yeah, great. I can't wait. I'm actually a bigger fan of Angel than I am of Buffy. So I'm so I'm really looking forward <laughs> to Angel, but. Uh, in the meantime, I will um, give the dreaded spoiler warning to my listeners if for some reason this is your first time tuning in. Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once that you press pause on this podcast and please go do that now. Uh, this is going to make a lot more sense to you if you've seen the show that we're actually talking about. But um, with all of that taken care of, uh, if you're ready, James, let's go to work. Yeah, definitely. All right. So tonight we are talking about uh, two of the biggies in uh, season two. We are talking about episodes 213 Surprise and 214 Innocence, um, which it's actually um, I, I see I show the titles listed as Surprise Part One and Innocence Part Two. <laughs> um, they're technically uh, one long episode kind of broken in half, kind of split in half. But um, and also this. Uh, these episodes originally aired back to back, like uh, on Monday. It, the show originally aired on Monday nights um, up to this point, and this marks the moment where um, the network wanted to switch to Tuesday nights. So we got the f part one on a Monday night, and we didn't have to wait too long uh, because uh, it officially debuted on its new Tuesday time slot with part two. Which is perfect in a way because it's it's it these episodes mark an important transition in the series. Yes. And so, it's, you know, transitioning nights is, is kind of symbolic of that. Yeah. Right. Um, well, all right, James, uh, I'm going to throw it straight to you. Um, the, so a lot of stuff happens here. So, um, what are your thoughts on surprise and or innocence? Where do you want to start? Oh God, there's just so many things happening in these two episodes. And and I think if, if if it's okay with you, we could just start with the the big issues of what's going on with with the relationship with between Buffy and, and Angel, and and how that develops in these two episodes, and I think how that symbolizes really, like I said, a lot of people note these two episodes as the moment that the show really reaches its maturity. Mm -hmm. I think even even Whedon says that on the commentary for Innocence that this is the episode that these are the episodes where the show really changes to something that went from a great show to really one of the greatest shows that's ever, ever made. And yeah. I think that starts with this idea that it's the moment when Buffy is, is losing her virginity to angel, but also having everything fall apart and it's on her birthday. 
which yeah. becomes becomes a regular theme in the show, and and really, it's a theme that captures the idea that Buffy is is always constantly trying to be a regular teenage girl, but the world won't let her be, and this this comes to that that issue. Yeah. So the series, um, I've talked about this many times on the podcast, but the series, um, at this stage in its development was all about matching, um, metaphor, making the, the sort of monster of the week and the, all of these horrible supernatural things that go on, uh, those being metaphors for like teenage life or whatever, high school is hell and that kind of thing. Exactly. And so like, obviously the big one here is, well, okay. So to quote Joss Whedon, uh, I believe it was also in his uh, in his commentary on these episodes. He defines that, or he like breaks this story down as, "I slept with my boyfriend, and he doesn't call me anymore, and now he's killing hookers and alleys." Yes, exactly. <laughs> so this is the this is like the teenage girl, um, the fears that they face when they like lose their virginity, and how uh, self conscious it makes them, and how they're they're concerned that the world looks at them differently and also the terror that um, their partner will treat them differently afterwards. Um, it, it elevates all of that stuff to obviously a ridiculous, like supernatural level, but it makes for some of the most emotional um, like acting and storytelling in the series to date. Yes. And I think, I think one of the things that's, that I, I really appreciate about these episodes is how normal, standard, everyday lines take on so much more significance. And the, the most obvious example of this is when when Buffy goes back to see Angel and she doesn't realize that he's become Angelus, he he, he starts mistreating her in, in exact exactly the ways you describe, where he doesn't he, the fact that they've had sex he represented represents it as he's now done with her yeah gotten what he wants from her and he ends the at the end of the scene it's just so heart-wrenching when buffy says to him i love you and she says it in such a way that has feeling and she's she's you know falling apart and he just callously says back i love you too and then he walks out saying i'll call you yeah and it's 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 so amazing how those words are playing on, on so many levels, but they're just standard words in the same sense. So David Boreanaz, uh, like up to this point in the series, he, he's not, I would say he's not the best actor on the show. Yes. Um, but to be fair, he hasn't had the best material to work with. He's had to be the brooding, sexy, unattainable guy. Uh, lurking in the shadows or whatever um he so th this is our first real glimpse at angelus um uh, and we we'll talk about the sort of the line of demarcation between angel and angelus and the fact that so far on the series nobody can pronounce angelus correctly <laughs> <laughs> but um but seeing him put on this new character uh like he really comes into his own and this is a thing, his acting improves, you know, as, as it goes on, as he goes on across um, his time on this series and then moving into his own series, but he's never better um, 
no matter how far into the series we go, he's never better than when he gets to unleash as the like ultimate bad boy of Angelus. And, and I'd like to make a quick confession. Yeah. I've been practicing saying Angelus all day today for this <laughs> moment. <laughs> I was so worried about what if I say Angelus wrong? I hope I'm still saying it right. Uh, <laughs> well, no, you've, <laughs> you've nailed it. You've nailed it on the show so far. Everybody calls him Angelus. Yes, and, and and even in the commentary, Whedon said how much it upsets him that everyone on in the media also calls him by the wrong name, and it doesn't. He feels it doesn't get corrected until by the media until Angel starts as a as a series. So yeah. I was worried I would say it wrong. I felt you know kind of concerned about that, but <laughs> I agree completely with you. I think in a way there, there's a certain. They're acting evil is is, a, is just kind of fun acting and it's great to watch mm-hmm. and he has so much coldness in him and he's able to be evil and cold in in almost a calm way it's not an angry evil it's a calm evil and that's that's a, that the scariest kind of evil and, and I think you know James Marsters playing Spike also has this ability to be evil but also have fun with it and and both of them are just you know really doing a great job of mixing that calmness with evil in a way that's more frightening than your standard monsters like the judge and i think that's that's part of the reason why this is really the turn of the show where the the evil characters are now you know people who are interacting with buffy as opposed to kind of a distant person like, like, you know, the judge. Yeah. I mean, that is the downside. You're, you're absolutely right. The, the fun of portraying an evil character, like there's so much more, most instant instances, I imagine there's so much more like for an actor to play with when you get to be bad or whatever. Um, which is why typically, or I shouldn't say typically, but often like the, the villains are the more entertaining characters. Lots of people like, like people like Darth Vader more than they like Luke Skywalker. (laughs) Um, So uh, it makes sense that Spike, like I am, I'm a massive Spike fan. It makes sense that Spike and now Angelus both stand out since uh, it's kind of the downside there. There's definitely some fun and there are some perks that come with a series that operates under the sort of monster of the week format. Um, if we're, if we're talking X-Files monster of the week stuff is what they did best. Um, but that it is kind of the downside that monster of the week episodes, um, you don't that like the villain doesn't really get a lot of development. There's not, there's usually not a lot of sort of attachment that we have to that character. Whereas Spike, um, just immediately had charisma. Like the second he stepped on screen, he was, he was instantly fun. And I thought, I think he was a sort of a fresh energy to the show. And Angelus brings with him the baggage of us knowing him for a season and a half as angel. And and I think, and and to kind of add to that from, from the moral perspective, it also represents the way we confront evil in our own lives. Because the vast majority of us hopefully don't confront evil in the pure evil sense. We confront evil in regular people who are just bad in certain ways and regular people who have nice sides, but also have, you know, immoral sides. Mm -hmm. And so 
in, in going back to the way in which we're looking at metaphors for high school as hell, there's also the sense of, you know, Cordelia in a certain way is, is a villain of the show early on, but she's also just a regular person, regular high school student that can be very much experienced as evil for people who get picked on or bullied at school. And so to have that better mix of an evil character being someone with a developed personality, but also being someone who has some good, who, you know, you could kind of see yourself, even in these early episodes, you could say, it would be fun to hang out with Spike and Drusilla. It seems like the, like the party that they're throwing in these two episodes seems like the better party yes, than the party yes. that Willow and, and Giles are throwing for Buffy. So those are the fun people, but they're also evil. I couldn't agree more. I wanted to comment on which of those two parties I'd rather go to. Of course, I would be the I would be um, Dalton, the bookish vampire who ends up getting, getting burned at that party. <laughs> but it's a it's a much better party than I think the surprise party they threw for Buffy. But, exactly. Although Oz was at Buffy's surprise party, and I will always I would always choose to hang out with Oz. So. Um, we don't have to leave Buffy and Angel behind, but uh, I do just want to comment on Oz because this yeah. is the episode where, um, like, well, basically all of our characters now, as of this episode, these episodes, all of our characters are sort of officially paired off, at least yes. at least for a short time. Obviously, Buffy and Angel. Um, we've had Giles and Jenny um, kind of on again, off again, maybe, and I guess this is a little more off again <laughs> at this point, but... Yeah. Um, obviously Spike and Drew and then Xander and Cordelia are a recent development and they're, I guess, together, but they are coupled. Um, and now sort of officially, uh, as, as Willow was very excited, you know, giddy as she walked away saying, I said date, uh, now Willow and Oz are a thing. Yeah. Yes. And, and it also has this connection to real life and, and, and good and bad and, there, there's especially the analogy between the relationship between Willow and Oz and then um, Xander and Cordelia where Oz is, is very careful when he's in the van with alone with Willow and he doesn't want to start their relationship when Willow hasn't gotten over Xander. Right. But Xander is, is willing to jump into a relationship with Cordelia where they haven't really settled their own feelings about other people, but also about each other. And so we're seeing these kind of different levels of maturity, which makes a lot of sense since I think we can so often forget that they're still high school students in many ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> over the years, so I'll say for your benefit, James, uh, but regular listeners are probably sick of hearing me say this, but, um, I have my memories of my original run through on the series are spotty at best. So I tend to think, even though I remember Oz and Willow being like a super cute couple. And I, I remember always loving Oz when I think of Willow in like a romantic way, I always think of Tara. That's just, I mean, that yes. comes, that comes later on and that's kind of, I don't know that that's the more significant emotional development for the character. So that's what I think of, but like, man, when that scene, when the first scene between Willow and Oz happens in this, like, holy crap, they are so freaking adorable. Like the two yes. of them together are 
absolutely precious to me. Yeah, so uh, that's exactly right. And I, I, I often wish that there was more of a sense of of where Willow's going to head, ending up with Tara. Mm-hmm. But it also feels it feels right when she's with Oz, and also it feels right that she would have these feelings for Xander, and she she's she's a believable character at this point. Although it it, it was it's one of my one of my things that I wish there was more of is more of a sense of her struggling with her sexuality and, and hints of, of who she's later going to become. Yeah. I, um, I feel like when that happens, it does seem like it kind of just comes out of nowhere, I guess. Um, again, my memories are spotty, but I, I feel like it happens when that, when the Tara thing happens, I feel like it comes over the course of maybe two or three episodes. Yeah. Um, and it really is kind of hot on the heels of her, her breakup with Oz. So I, I remember there was some controversy around it. There were a lot of fans that weren't ready for that. I, I wasn't upset about that, but I was upset. I was upset about it in the sense that we were losing Oz and I, I freaking loved Oz, but um, yeah, like on this, on this rewatch, I'm going back and I'm trying, I'm sort of imagining I'm reading into uh, I'm retroactively noticing all of the foreshadowing, like the foreshadowing that's not there because they, they weren't, they didn't know where everything was going at this point in the writing. They don't know what Willow's sexuality is eventually going to blossom into. Yes. So, so they, they weren't foreshadowing it, but I'm watching on this rewatch with all of that stuff in mind. And I, I'm coming up with all sorts of like, completely imaginary on my part uh, <laughs> examples of how oh oh see that's it right there like uh in inca mummy girl um uh what was her name empata i think was the name of the mummy like she almost kissed willow and i just i remember commenting on the episode uh, where we discussed it that 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 was almost willow's first girl on girl kiss <laughs> but anyways um <laughs> You also, it also brings to mind Angel is having this change right now, and I'm constantly thinking about the fact that Spike is eventually going to change, mm-hmm. and and that becomes a very interesting parallel, and and you always kind of think about the comparison of of Angel's journey versus Spike's journey, and and it makes so much sense because Spike is in a way he's he's the most lovable villain, but eventually he comes out on the other side and so I, I feel the same way as you I'm kind of watching Spike's character development seeing if there's hints of that but probably that those weren't intended at this this early stage yeah um, on an earlier episode I had uh, Spike superfan Teresa Fortier joined me and we were we we waxed rhapsodic <laughs> about Spike for like the entire podcast and um, I pointed out how like the first time Spike meets Buffy in that, uh, where he's kind of stalking her in the bronze, uh, that scene plays out in a very, um, like sexually charged way. And, um, Teresa who works with, uh, James Marsters, she knows him. Uh, she has said that he, that it was not written that way, but that James Marsters chose to play it that way. So, so uh, some uh, certain aspects of the character development 
uh, specifically with Spike, uh, come from the way that James Marsters chose to portray the character. And we'll get into this as the series goes on and, and the character starts to change and grow, how much of the actor's decisions that build in elements of the character may or may not cause problems in the writing room in future seasons where the writers maybe didn't necessarily intend for a character to go that way, but the character has been played that way for so long. (laughs) So this this is why this is going to be a great podcast because you're seeing into the future. It's it's like doing a political podcast, but you know exactly what's going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my god that would be a nightmare <laughs> i would hate to do that oh man um so let, all right well let's talk about angelus since yes. these two episodes give us the big sort of sort of the big reveal um although as this season continues we get much more but like this is the turning point where angelus finally makes his appearance or angelus or whatever they're going to call him right now actually i think uh I think Jenny is the only one that even refers to him by the name. She still says Angelus. She doesn't say Angelus, but she's the only one that calls him by that. Everybody else, including Spike and Drew, call him Angel. Yes, I think that's right. And I, that drove me crazy, but is that inaccurate? Like when he was ripping apart Europe, when they were like, you know, being monstrous, all three of them together, did he go by Angel then or did he go by Angelus? I'm trying to that that's a really good question. I can't re- I feel like he went by Angelus and you I should know this since I'm such a super fan of Angel the series but obviously the detail is slipping my mind but I feel like they should have known him as Angelus and so when they called him Angel I was like uh that kind of <laughs> kind of bothers me but again they're 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 sort of writing these things as they happen I guess so. But anyways, Angelus um yeah is here to mess things up for the rest of the season. Yes. And, and one thing I, I, I want to talk about, and I hope I, I can get some thoughts from you on is in, in philosophy, we, we have this problem, the, the problem of personal identity mm-hmm. where, where the, the, the nature of the problem is how do we determine who we are as one individual? And for, for the most part, this doesn't come up a lot in our lives. It's very strange exceptions. But in, in a science fiction sense or a fantasy sense, we get these great examples of this. And so there's this question of, are these the same person? Is, is Angel the same person as Angelus? And it really matters here because they've punished Angelus by creating Angel. And then Angel feels horrible for things that Angelus did. But if he's not really the same person as Angelus, they're not things that Angel did. And then when he gets a moment of pure happiness, Angelus gets gets to come back. And now he's in charge and runs the body. And <laughs> and, and so you get this great conversation where, where Jenny, is, Jenny is saying to her uncle, none of this really makes sense. How, how is it a punishment for Angel when he gets a moment of pure happiness that we let him go back to being a vampire without a soul who, who gets to be evil again. And, and, and the uncle it gives an explanation. Yeah. He that, hand, he hand waves it. <laughs> well, well, I think it's an interesting explanation. He says, 
we're not interested in justice. We're interested in vengeance, right? And and he treats vengeance as their god. Their 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 vengeance is alive, and vengeance is who they're they're trying to make happy with this punishment of Angelus. But 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 it still raises all these questions of, is it really a punishment? And who's getting punished? Is it only the good angel that gets punished? The particulars of the gypsy curse are interesting, to put it mildly. Um, <laughs> because, like, obviously, while he's angel and while he's being tortured by the guilt and all of that, sure, that as as a punishment, as a curse, that makes sense. But... And and even the notion that, you know, a moment of pure happiness will turn him back into the bloodthirsty Angelus, even that as a threat could be considered, you know, an appropriate part of the curse if Angel had known about that. Yes. But it becomes clear. I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure how clear it is like to new viewers in, in these two episodes, but I, I know it eventually at least becomes clear that Angel, the angel we've known all along, did not know that was an aspect of the curse. And so he couldn't, that couldn't have been part of his emotional torture all this time. He couldn't have known that, you know, if he allowed himself to be happy, that he would go back to being the soulless monster. And so, yeah, it really doesn't make an awful lot of sense. Um <laughs> I, I want to push that maybe it does, okay. although it makes sense in a weird way. Okay. In, in, in a way, what ends up happening, so Angel feels guilty for horrible things that Angelus did, which seems to me part of the odd part because Angelus would not feel guilty about those things. And that's where I kind of feel like this can't be the same person because Angelus is someone who loves doing horrible things. Angel, someone who feels horrible about those things. But then, after the moment of pure happiness, Angelus comes back, and that's the first time I think, although it's it's not played out that as obviously, but I think Angelus feels really horrible about Angel's positive emotions. I think there's a punishment in Angelus because he has to have these these experiences of love and and being good and treating others right and 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 feeling like he was punished by having to live as angel and now he experiences that as a punishment even though we've always thought that the punishment was angel feeling bad about what angelus did which makes less sense to me because i don't know why angel should get punished <laughs> Yeah, the the gypsies, the the curse, and in some in some ways the series itself wants to have its cake and eat it too. Here they yes. they want they they wanted Angelus to suffer, and the the like the notion there is that it's not two different people. Like so at the series will eventually go to great pains to tell us that a soul in terms of vampires, a human soul equals a conscience. And so like a vampire is just a demon that hasn't had its conscience removed. Basically. I, 
I push back against that. I struggle with this, and I will for the rest of this series <laughs> until my dying day. Uh, there are so many conflicting ideas about uh, good and evil and what a soul does and what vampires are and what demons are and all that. This, it, Anyways. Um, and and I'll, I'll just point out one thing that Angel and I do think they're playing with these ideas in their conversations. One thing Angela says to Spike when 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 Spike is is kind of surprised, why isn't Angelus just happy with Buffy dying when the whole world's destroyed? Spike, Angelus responds, "She made me feel like a human being. That's not the kind of thing you just forgive." Yeah. So yeah. that's that's his kind of reverse punishment in in evil world that he had to feel like someone who was in love, and that tears him up inside. I mean, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. You're, you're right on the mark there, but I'm just, I'm still thinking in terms of the gypsies and how, like, I guess they, I guess by their terms, that's an appropriate punishment for Angelus for him to also have to suffer with the memories of, of Angel being all goody goody for the last hundred years or whatever. Maybe. But in the long run, that really doesn't feel like that big a deal. Like Angelus, he, he whines about it a few times, um, but not an awful lot. He just, once Angelus is back, he, for the most part, just goes back to being, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Good times, kill everybody, super evil. So. It might also be something that we as non-purely evil beings cannot understand the hatred for. <laughs> we we can't fathom it if we haven't been in, in Angelus's shoes for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can't fathom how horrible it would be to have been in love. <laughs> well, I mean, I've had some bad relationships before, so I don't know, but... <laughs> Anyways, uh, there's the whole notion of the judge. So the the MacGuffin, I guess, of, of these episodes is the monster of the week, the judge, which, by the way, this is, I believe, this is the first example, not the last, but the first example of an actor returning to the show in a as a different character. Uh, because and pretty, pretty quickly, right? Yeah, because Brian Thompson was Luke uh, in uh, Welcome to the Hellmouth and... Um, oh my gosh, what was the second episode? The Harvest. Um, so yeah, it was just like a season and a half ago. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so the gimmick, the MacGuffin of this is that the judge is able to burn the humanity out of whoever. So if you're a human, obviously, I, I suppose you are most, you have a lot of humanity, we could argue that for some people, but by and large, um, burning the humanity out of a human uh, is not a good thing. But then he he immediately talks about the stench of humanity that is all over Spike and Drew, and he clearly burns the humanity. He destroys Dalton because Dalton has humanity in him because he reads books. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so again, this is this is just another example of the series raising questions about sort of the black and white worldview that the show has. I think, I think that's, that's exactly right. And, and 
as we know, going, going back to the Spike question, what's interesting about Spike is unlike Angel, Spike ends up turning good mostly through his own choices. Mm-hmm. And, and he doesn't have some sort of split identity because of it. Right. So for, for the rest of time, like spoiler alert for new listeners, uh, all the way through to the end of angel, the series Angelus is always a separate is always treated as like a separate being. Yes. So, so angel has actual like multiple personality disorder and there's never a point in the series where they sort of make peace with that or where they, you know, they integrate the two personalities to become a whole, um, uh, spike, I, that never happens. Like when spike right. does what he does, he doesn't suddenly start going by a different name and he doesn't pretend that everything that he did when he didn't have a soul was somebody else. He right. suff- he suffers guilt. Like he goes through a sim, you know, the similar emotional torture that, that angel goes through, but angel is the only one to the best of my knowledge. Angel's the only one that sort of gets the, the uh, get out of jail free card, I guess of saying, well, I'm not Angelus. That's not me. And, and, and to bring up another character who, who I believe uh, briefly appears here. Uh, one of my favorite characters is Harmony Kendall, who, when she becomes a vampire, I, I guess, again, a spoiler, uh, I guess I should say spoiler first, then say it. But <laughs> when, when Harmony becomes a vampire, she, she clearly wants the, I don't, she's trying to be good. She, <laughs> she thinks she is. Yeah. Yes. I mean, she, she's, she's great because she, she, she has these, all these evil tendencies, but she also realizes for, at least for the, the sake of the, her job, she'll be as good as, as, as much as she can. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so maybe some vampires have it in them. I, I, I think that, you know, harmony might be an interesting example of this. I, I guess, so the, listeners, this will not be the last time you hear me go on and on ad nauseum about the whole <laughs> black and white versus shades of gray thing uh, that comes up in this series and in Angel. Um, it's it's something I struggle with, but maybe that's my deal. Maybe the show, uh, even though the show makes sort of black and white statements about what a vampire is versus what a human is and all that, um, I, I think the sh- the series probably is allowing its characters to have faulty knowledge, to be unreliable narrators, to, you know, to not have all the information, to change their views as they grow or whatever. Um, whereas I'm coming at it as a fan who has had run-ins with other fans. <laughs> I've had so many debates <laughs> over these matters um, that I'm so super sensitive to the, the, uh, the black and white ideology in the early seasons. I really should probably learn to let this go. No, I think it's a very interesting topic. I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to when you discuss conversations with dead people. I think, I think you're going to have interesting things to say about that one. Yeah, yeah, that'll be like a. That's going to have to be like a special episode, just because I stole the name for the damn podcast. But anyways, <laughs> <Yes>. <sighs> anyways, so who else can we talk about here? Um, what else have we got going on? We haven't we haven't talked a lot about Drusilla. Um, Drusilla was a fascinating character when she was first introduced, uh, because she was practically helpless 
Um, and now, obviously, we they've her and Spike have kind of traded places. Um, yeah, I think it's weird that a vampire can be paralyzed, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I think that's weird. It seems to me like he should heal faster than he does, but um, but now Drusilla is is well, not completely back to you know. I mean, she's still obviously dealing with stuff, but she's much more of a presence now than she was before. Which Drusilla do you prefer? The sort of virtually bedridden kind of babbling Drusilla or this one? Oh, I definitely prefer this one. I think Drusilla's Drusilla's an amazing character in part because she is, she is inherently frightening and she's also very vulnerable and you feel, you have to feel bad for her because there's a point where when, when Spike and Angel are having this discussion that I, I previously mentioned about why does Angel, or I'm sorry, Angelus at this point, why does Angelus want to hurt Buffy so bad? I think Drusilla basically says something like, you want to do to her what you did to me. Mm-hmm. And so Angel, Angelus, in, in his history, when he, when he, before he sired Drusilla, he basically did the worst things he could possibly think of to just destroy her as a person. And even as a vampire, she's never psychologically recovered from all the horrible things that Angelus did to her. And so that both makes her so much, in a way, she's such a frightening character, but she's also a character that you understand she's dealing with trauma. And her way of dealing with trauma is unfortunately wrapped up in the horrible things she ends up doing, which is unfortunately very real because people deal with trauma in different ways. And, and we, we, we don't really know how various people are going to respond to having horrible situations thrust upon them. And so I'm constantly looking at Priscilla and saying, she both frightens me, but also I need to feel for her because of what she went through. Yeah. I've, I've always been torn over, uh, not, not over the character of Drusilla. I've always loved the character of Drusilla, but I'm torn over what I wanted to become, like what I wanted that character to become. Because on the one hand, she is so compelling uh, and just fun to watch in her her damaged, evil state as Drusilla. Yeah. Um, but I, I mentioned on a previous episode that I had sort of my my head cannon before the when the series ended. And before there were the official comic continuations, I had my sort of fan fiction that I was writing in my head. And part of that was going to be that Spike, uh, having seen that Angel could, you know, get his soul back and integrate that and become a better person. And then most importantly, himself, um, Spike himself getting his soul back and becoming a better person would uh, pursue the idea of saving Drusilla by figuring out a way to cure her or whatever. And I do feel there, there's, there's a sense, you know, before Spike becomes a better person, there is a sense that we're rooting for them as a couple. Absolutely. We, we want them to be a happy couple, even though we would probably prefer them not to be a happy couple through destroying the world. (laughs) I that scene just makes me think of uh the tick 
did you ever watch like the original yes, animated I series the tick yeah. <laughs> there's that episode where someone is like someone's interviewing the tick and they're like uh so what are your powers can you destroy the world and he says my gosh i hope not that's where i keep all my stuff <laughs> that's exactly what i think of when they're all sitting around talking about well we're going to destroy the world and uh Spike's even like, well, Buffy's in the world, so that's a good thing. Right. But I'm like, so are you. <laughs> it's very interesting how often evil on these shows want to destroy the world. And it's it's kind of weird because they're not it's not just that they want to rule the world, but also they're going to lose their main source for food and you know, enjoyment from messing with people's lives. Yeah. Well, whatever. <laughs> they don't think things through very well, I guess. I mean, Sp my... Spike is impulsive. He He's not thinking it through. And Drusilla is definitely not thinking it through. Yeah. She's just naming the stars. Yes. Um, all right. So we finally, the other shoe finally drops on Jenny calendar. Um, who, for the entire run of this podcast, ever since Jenny was first introduced, I've been uh, alluding to the fact that there's something about Jenny Calendar, and I just found it interesting. I mean, the character was created as a one-off initially. They didn't know that they were going to make her an ongoing character. and But from her very first appearance, I've been fascinated with the way that just like the timing of her introduction and practically every time she pops up in an episode, it always is so closely tied into something involving angel, even before they knew they were going to make the connection there. Um, and but at any rate, it was all basically leading up to this. And I, I don't know all the particulars, the behind the scenes stuff of when exactly they decided that this is what they were going to do with Jenny calendar. But, this is one of those things, one of those sort of retroactive foreshadowing things that I kind of fan wank, um, where it feels like it makes sense from the very first time Jenny pops up. I think one of the things that is, is difficult about this episode, going back to the discussion we had about how exactly are they punishing Angel, is what Jenny clearly doesn't understand it, and Jenny doesn't seem motivated by it, but she's the one who ends up having to carry it out. And she's the one who also is interacting with, with the Scoobies. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that she's going to continue on with a plan that she acknowledges doesn't make sense is a bit strange. And so she, she's being put into a, her character is being put into a bad role here where she has to move the plot around and, and it, it makes her character a little bit less believable, at least from these episodes. Yeah, I try to, uh, I, I try to make it believable. I try to imagine that it's believable because she does, yeah. she does feel, she does seem like she's conflicted about it. She tries to talk her uncle out of it and explain that, you, you know, there's extenuating circumstances you don't understand. And she does try it. She does tell him angel can help us or whatever, you know, and which is when he, when her uncle goes on about how that's not what we're here for. Um, but, uh, yeah, she, she is a little, I don't know. She does jump right into doing what her uncle says. And, 
trying to keep Buffy and Angel apart. And, and I mean, in her defense, as she explains, she didn't know where, what that was going to lead to. She didn't know about the details of the curse. Um, but in any case, it's also interesting that in, I'm not going to remember the episode title, but when, uh, in the episode, when Ethan rain first popped up, uh, and oh it was the dark age not not his first episode but in the dark age uh jenny ends up getting possessed by igon was that the demon's name and angel's the one that saves her right like the very fact that he is a vampire without a soul is what allowed uh him to save her from that demon possession so yeah i, w- I wonder if there's i wonder what her history is i wonder how much she lived at, as a member of the Calderash and how, how much she, you know, I, she, she must have an interesting backstory that gets her into this situation and, and leads her maybe to be more likely to continue on with her mission, even though her mission seems strange to her. I mean, on the surface, it's just kind of a fun, um, I don't, I don't know, uh, contrast to have her be this, uh, a computer teacher and to have her, she's had so many conversations with Giles where she's pushing for him to, you know, read a book that was written after the 10th century or whatever, you know, uh, <laughs> she's, she's the techno pagan. Um, and then we find out that she actually comes from this back from a, a gypsy background, um, right? which I, I'm not an expert on uh, Romani or, or gypsy folklore, but my perception of that is that they are not the most sort of tech embracing culture. Well, and, th- and this might not be a, a, a fair depiction of, of the Romani. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, that's maybe that's why they call it the Calderash mm-hmm. to kind of suggest it's another group. Well, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think the Calderash is a real gypsy culture. Um, Unfortunately, I do not have the book in front of me right now, but uh, in um, previous guest Nikki Stafford's book, Bite Me, The Unofficial Guide to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I think in her uh, section on this episode, she talks about the Calderash gypsy people. So, in fact, let me just do a really quick Google. Maybe I'll find out. Let me put in Calderosh. This is riveting radio. This is what my listeners <laughs> love. Uh, the Calderosh are a subgroup of the Romani people. They were traditionally smiths and metal workers and speak a number of Romani dialects grouped together under the term Calderosh Romani, a subgroup of Vlox Romani. I wonder if the, in a way, I, I kind of wish they were fictional since this is probably unfair to them, mm-hmm. but but I guess there's a sense in which if they're considered the, the metal workers, we are looking at the more contemporary version of them in, in her being a techie. Yeah, good point. Good point. Uh, it says, due to industrialization, metalcraft is no longer as profitable, so the Calderash have diversified their sources of income, though often they remain in metallurgy. So. Who knew? Probably a lot of people. I did not know that. That was fascinating for me to find out. So, <laughs> I did not either. Um, all right. What else have we got? What else goes on in these episodes that we have to talk about? Well, let, 
just just for the fun of it, I think the the scene of the judge in the mall should just be. I, I thought it was it, it was one of my favorite scenes up to this point in the series. It remains one of my favorite scenes, and and you know I just think it's it's a fun way to deal with the fact that the judge cannot be defeated by any weapon, by any forged weapon. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I, I thought that uh, I thought the get around there or whatever, the sort of loophole that they found in the rules there was that a, a rocket propelled grenade or whatever it is that she's using is technically not forged. It's like the explosion is a chemical reaction or whatever. But, well, the, also- but the episode doesn't really say that the episode plays it off as Buffy saying, yeah, you, we forge better weapons now or whatever is kind of what is more or less what she says. That was then this is now. And, and, and also, uh, they don't claim that they've killed him. So it's oh, yeah, still yeah. true that the weapon cannot kill him. It just smashed him into pieces, which clearly has been done in the past. So he can't be killed by any weapon, but apparently he can be cut up by weapons. True. It's very true. He was, and, he, it, I think he's blown into smaller bits than just two arms, two legs, a torso and a head this time. <laughs> don't and, need... and, and Cordelia's left to pick up the pieces. Yeah. Her job sucks. Yeah. Um, I want, I want to talk about uh, the episode never, ever says anything about this, but I have this sort of passing familiarity with one of the versions of the Osiris mythology, uh, from, from like Egyptian, uh, mythology, the notion that, and I, I might be getting this incorrect. Hopefully you are vaguely familiar with this and you can go along with me, but I believe in some uh, version of Egyptian mythology, Osiris was uh, torn apart by his rivals, uh, and his body was separated into, I want to say, like 14 pieces and hidden around the world or whatever. And when he was put back, he was put back together, and I believe like his sexual organ was the only piece that was not put back, and so he could no longer reproduce in the normal way. Anyways, the reason I'm vaguely familiar with this is uh, various sort of vampire uh, cycle stories have played on the Osiris myth, saying that uh, Osiris is like the god of vampires. Oh, interesting. I, I don't think I've ever heard that that idea of connecting Osiris to vampires. Okay. Um yeah, I can't remember where it might have been the White Wolf stuff, the World of Darkness uh, game. If if you're familiar with that, that may be where I first heard it. But um, I'll probably edit this out. But I'm about to do another Google search. I just want to look up Osiris and see if I'm <laughs> completely making this up. He's uh, identified as the god of the afterlife, the underworld, and the dead. But more appropriately, as the god of transition, resurrection, and regeneration. Um, yeah. And it is. I do remember that um, I believe his penis is used to impregnate Isis, and then she starts putting together the pieces. So that might parallel this episode, too, in the sense that they're putting together the pieces to create the judge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I was just, I was trying to tie it into the whole judge thing, since the, first of all, it's it's a vampire thing, but the judge was cut up into various pieces and they had to reassemble him. Um, 
I want to I want to comment on how sometimes like I adore this show, but sometimes some of the some of the I don't know gimmicks that they use are just kind of silly. Like the fact that all all of his body parts were just conveniently put into boxes that that are shaped like the body part that can easily be assembled into a a big one big action figure. Yes, it's made for kind of an interesting visual and worth worth noting this episode earned the show its first Emmy for makeup effects for the judge. Uh, I, I believe listeners, please uh, write in and correct me if I'm mistaken. I believe the show only ever won two Emmys and this was its first. And I don't remember what the other Emmy was, but they won an Emmy for the best makeup effects for the judge. Um, so Angel has a line, uh, or excuse me, Angelus has a line when he's uh, in Innocence. When he's talking to Spike, he says, to kill this girl, you have to love her. I thought that was fascinating that it is yeah. Angelus telling that to Spike about Buffy. And, and I think to to talk more, we, we've talked about this from, from the Angelus and the Angel side. And I think the probably the more important side is the Buffy side. And it 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 kind of comes reminds me of, of an episode that had aired previously to this one, I believe where, where Kendra first appears Mm -hmm. and, and and Buffy's explaining why she would defeat Kendra in a fight. And it it largely comes down to the fact that Buffy is this more well-rounded person. Buffy is not, uh, she's not, well, I'm going to call Kendra a robot, which might be offensive to Kendra, but, but she is robotic. And Buffy is not. Buffy is clearly a slayer who has all this depth as a person and who clearly is going to be a great slayer in part because she's not just going through the motions of fighting. She also has a, a, a imagination and creativity. And so she's not going through the motions until season six, at least <laughs> when, that's when she literally is going through the motions. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I love that part where Spike, Spike, who, who has, of course, he's killed vampire slayers, but he's, he's never going to be able to kill Buffy. And so there is this sense of the way to get to Buffy is to go through her greatest strength, which is her emotions and her emotional connections to real people and her and, and the fact that she is a real person herself who is not happily accepting that she should have to be the vampire slayer. Mm-hmm. And so it always comes back to the idea that this was just supposed to be her birthday. She was supposed to have a birthday party and she was supposed to, you know, complete her birthday with, with this wonderful act of making love with her boyfriend, but everything turns horrible because she can never stop being the vampire slayer. Uh, these episodes give us our fur. It finally introduces the Angel and Buffy love theme uh, by composer Christoph Beck, which I, I'd forgotten it took this long into the series for that particular piece of music to pop up. Um, and of course, it pops up just in time for the, the ultimate teenage romantic tragedy <laughs> to happen. But um, so, how do you. I don't want to ask you in terms of like, who do you ship Buffy and Angel or Buffy and Spike, but how do you feel about the, the romance between Buffy and Angel? 
Like, are you invested enough, whoever you ship, are you invested enough in it that, uh, like the emotion behind it in this episode in these episodes really affected you? So one thing that go, going to, towards the angel episodes, uh, I mean the series angel, mm-hmm. one thing that when I first went through the, the shows and, and, and I was lucky enough to, to really binge a lot of this because like I said, I didn't get to watch them when they first aired, but that gives me the good fortune of, of binging a lot and, and going through the angel episodes, I was frustrated and disappointed that both both the case that that you know Buffy technically isn't in the final episodes of Angel for the most part. Uh, there there there's not a um, you know there's not a, a an appearance. But but also this idea that as we get towards the end of Angel, neither Spike nor Angel end up with Buffy. But after I let it sit with me and I, I put more thought into it. I think there's something right about that. And, you know, neither Buffy, she neither ends up with Angel or Spike nor, nor Riley. I think there's, there's something right about the fact I can, that I can only, I can only imagine some of my listeners responses that as you're, as you were picking the, the people that Buffy could have feasibly ended up with, you named Angel and Spike and Riley. <laughs> I, I personally like Riley, but I know that I am in the minority. So I'm, I'm just, I picture some of my listeners going, Riley, really? That's who you said? Well, well he, he, he's mentioned in the list. He's not, he's not who I was rooting for, but he was mentioned in the list. Okay. All right. At least but, you didn't but, say, at least you didn't say Parker. Yes. But, but it, I think it's important that she need, this is, this is her high school romance. She, it, it's kind of she needs to grow out of her high school romance and, and, and spikes not long after high school. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a sense of she's going to grow into a different person than the one we're watching. And the one we're watching really is someone who's not just a high school student, but someone who's left, who's forced into a life, not of her choosing that really takes up her entire existence. And so I think it makes a lot of sense that she's not going to end up with the people we're watching her with in these episodes because we're seeing her early life and we're seeing especially her early life when she's stuck being the vampire slayer in the strongest sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you answered my question. Are you emotionally (laughs) invested in the pairing of Buffy and Angel? (laughs) My answer is at, at, at this point in the series, I was, but then I became more of a spike person. But at the end, after watching it all and, and thinking harder about it, I, I'm a independent Buffy person. Okay. <laughs> all right. That's fair. Um, I ask because um, I, I have issues with some of the characters and I have issues with some of the romantic storylines that happen, but that's neither here nor there. I'm doing my best to, like really key in on the performances that these actors are giving, whether or not I'm a fan of the Buffy and angel relationship, uh, which at this point in the series on my original viewing at this point in the series, I probably was, I, I was never a huge fan of angel in the beginning, which is ironic since I'm a super fan of his now. But um, at this point in the series, I probably was invested. I don't really remember, but I probably was invested in this romance. 
Um, but at this point, like 20 years later, uh, I'm a completely different person. I have a different viewpoint on everything, including the show and the characters. And so revisiting and watching these episodes, some of the sort of maudlin over the top teen romantic tragedy that's going on here. Um, you know, I, I, I try to resist, but sometimes I can't help but roll my eyes a little bit at some of it. Uh, but I really try to focus on the acting and I feel like in these two episodes, um, Sarah Michelle Geller, who's, who's given us some great performances up to, up till now. Um, like this, these two episodes really are a high watermark for the series in yes. terms of, well, I was going to say in terms of like character development and emotion and, and thematic development and all that. I, I love the fact that you love the mall scene. I, I was going to say that the final, the, the scene in the mall is like happens just so quickly. I get that's part of the humor. Like uh, it is funny that they build up the, the big bad of the episode and then she defeats him with a rocket launcher in like a minute. Um, but I don't know. The, the mall scene was a little bit cheesy for me. However, the, none of that matters because the emotion and the, the themes of the episode are so powerful and like transformative for what the series is that you can't help, but look at these as uh, a massive success in terms of moving the show on to the next phase of its evolution. So, so what, what I think is picking up on, on, on what you're saying, I, I, I want to go back to this idea that, we're we're looking at spikes. I'm sorry, I meant angels. I'm we're ooh, looking at angels. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Freudian slip, I suppose, of some sort. <laughs> we're looking at angels' punishment, but really, Buffy's being punished much more than Angel is, because in a way, Angel has spent a long time coming to grips with the idea that he shouldn't be happy. And when we get to the Angel series, he's he's constantly reminding everyone that he really doesn't deserve to be happy. He accepts that the 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 curse that was put on him is deserving, and so him finding out that he can't have a, a moment of perfect happiness is fitting as far as he's concerned. But Buffy, of course, has done nothing to deserve that, and Buffy, in fact, is far opposite. She's She's doing everything she's supposed to do as the Vampire Slayer, even though she doesn't choose to be the Vampire Slayer. And she's now going to be kept from having her love with Angel. And in fact, even worse, having her love with Angel has become dangerous. And even if she can one day get him back to being Angel, they can never be together again, which is going to force him onto a different TV show. So onto a different network. Yeah. So it's really, it's, it's very unfortunate that Buffy is the one who has to suffer much more than angel ever has to suffer. And, 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 and in a way I, I I'm not saying this is, this is a criticism. It, it makes sense in a sense that when you're getting vengeance as, as, as um, Jenny and, and her people are doing vengeance does not shoot narrowly. Other people are going to get hurt. And in this case, Buffy's caught in the crossfire 
And so she's the one who has to suffer for what someone else did wrong a hundred years before she was ever born. Yeah. I mean, we can criticize the, the logic that went into the, the details of this gypsy curse. But um, if you're looking at it from their very myopic, their very narrow point of view, that it, this is all just about doing whatever is necessary to make Angelus suffer. Um, th- not, not only, I mean, does he say he, they don't, they're not really interested in collateral damage, basically, is kind of what he says. Like, that's all they want is to be sure that Angela suffers. They don't really care who else gets hurt in the crossfire, who gets caught in the crossfire. But even if they did, they might actually feel like maybe Buffy deserves to be caught up in this curse too, because what she is doing is contributing to Angel finding some level of peace. And that's very interesting. And, And it also represents this, this, constant idea that Buffy is caught in the middle of fights that aren't of her making Mm -hmm. and her, her entire life as the vampire slayer is she has to step into these fights and, and save the day when she didn't do anything to start the fights. And, and, and it's, it's in, in an important way, being the vampire slayer is her curse. And, and she's cursed in the same way that angel is, except for, there's no part of her that deserved it. Yeah, very true. Good point. I'm, I'm so, um, I can't remember if you've signed on for any future episodes, but I would love to have you back. And, uh, I have, it'll never happen because Skype will never allow me. I have so many audio issues with Skype when I have just one or two guests on, there's no way I can have like a round table of guests. <laughs> to come back for like the final episode, unless we somehow did it in a physical location. But I would just love to have uh, several guests come back at the end of, as we get to the end of Buffy, because um, like one of my, one of my biggest issues with the character of Buffy and, and in some, since the series Buffy comes about in the very end, uh, in the final season, towards the end of the very final season. Uh, and we don't need to get into it now necessarily, but I've, I view, and this is part of my exploration, part of my evolution in this podcast is to see if I change my attitude about this. But at the moment I view some of where Buffy ends up going by the end of the series as a little bit hypocritical considering where she started the series and what she struggles with throughout the series. And what you were just talking about there is the fact, the very real fact and the, and the tragic fact that Buffy is caught up in all kinds of stuff, uh, not by her own choosing. She is, her life is completely dictated by the, uh, by the whims of men of magic centuries ago and forces of evil centuries ago or whatever. Like she had no say in any of this. She is the chosen one. Yes. If, if you don't mind, I, I'd love to hear. I, I, so I, I'll, I'll admit I'm a big fan of the ending of Buffy, just like I'm a big fan of the ending of angel. I know there's a lot of disagreement about this, but I'd love to hear what, why do you think she's hypocritical? The ending of angel is one of the best uh, series finales of all time. 
I agree. Hands down. But <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really hoping that over the course of this podcast and this rewatch that uh, not only will, will I be a different person and I'll, I'll feel differently about the series as I go through, but that my guests will help me come to peace with some of this. But at this moment, based on my previous experiences with the series, uh, the I, I've I've warned my listeners so many times. This is a spoiler show. We're talking about stuff in the future, but we're just so you know, for the next couple minutes, I'm going to get specific and talk about something that happens at the very damn end of the series. So, plug your ears for three minutes if you really don't want to know. But the whole um, empowering the potentials that yes. happens uh, thematically and and you know emotionally. I get what that is. Uh, it's a very empowering, it's supposed to be a very empowering, like literally and, and uh, metaphorically an empowering statement that the show makes. Um, but I kind of viewed it at the time, at least I kind of viewed it as Buffy has spent seven seasons to one extent or another complaining about the fact that she was not given a choice in all of this. She was the chosen. And even if she tries to stop be many times over the course of the series, she tries to lay put aside the mantle of the slayer and live a normal life. And that she, she doesn't get that choice. The very fact that she has the slayer ability is the very fact that she, I mean, technically she isn't even the slayer anymore, but the very fact that she is a slayer um, draws her into this world against her will. And the series ends with her basically taking that choice away from all kinds of other women. Although technically they do get to choose. Well, they, I mean, they get to choose in the sense that they, uh, they don't all have to come live with Buffy and learn how to be slayers, but they all, and obviously they don't all get end up having watchers. Although I think the comics do stuff with this and I don't know or care, but um, the, uh, but they all are, they are all empowered. And like, I mean, I remember distinctly, we see that one scene of like the girl playing baseball and all of a sudden the power comes into her or whatever. And she, okay. uh, so, I mean, there are, there are hundreds or thousands maybe. They get that's right. They get to choose whether they're going into the final fight. But you're right. I don't think they get to choose whether they're going to become empowered. Yeah, they just the the slayer all of the potentials around the the world their power awakens or whatever. So and I just well, have to I have to imagine that and I, again, I feel like the comics address this. I've had I've had guests tell me that even though the comics don't start off great, they eventually you know, get their footing. And I, I've been told that the comics have become great, but um, in the context of the series, the television series, what we have of it, um, they, uh, they do not have, they don't all have a watcher to explain these new powers to them. In fact, angel, the series kind of deals with this when they find the slayer Dana. Let me let me say a little bit that kind of I, I won't give a full defense because that's going to come later in the podcast. But but when when you get to those episodes, and I'm, I'm hopefully someone will defend the show. With you. <laughs> oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. <laughs> but but let me let me just say, I think part of the issue is, and I think this is a theme that goes 
all the way back and includes the, the shows we're currently talking about is that it's not it's part, part of the problem is that Buffy was empowered without her choice but also there's a sense in which she feels alone even though she's not fully alone and I think part of Buffy's growth is accepting that she's not really alone because she has the Scoobies but that's hard at first for her to accept there's, there's a scene in, in one of these episodes where they're in the library and, and Buffy is spinning out of control. It's, it's an innocence. And, and Xander and Willow want to go fight Spike, Drusilla, and the judge with, by themselves because Buffy can't really handle it. And, and Giles, of course, tells them they're just being crazy. And that, that kind of represents that Buffy's never alone. But she was the only one, especially at this early point, who had a chance fighting vampires. And and eventually the others, you know, Willow becomes super powerful. They, they get joined with Faith, who turns good and evil back and forth. But, but there is this sense of what the potentials are getting into allows them to have partners on their level in a way that Buffy never really felt like she had at the beginning. And so there, there's this there's this kind of tension with the show that I think is very good tension and interesting, where Buffy always has a team, but she always feels alone, even though she has a team. Mm-hmm. And, and and I feel like that adds onto her burden of she is the Slayer, but she has some friends who happen to be somewhat helpful. That's far as he's concerned. No, I, you're you're completely right, and uh, I'm I'm certain that that kind of stuff is is discussed. Like that is on screen and in the stories in season seven. I'm 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 positive yeah. that that's part of it, and part of the notion of I had completely forgotten that the potentials actually. For some reason, I was thinking that that whole activating the potentials was like one of virtually the last thing that the series does. I forgot they were in most of the season. So yes. <laughs> that wasn't the last thing the show does. But um, uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that the show focuses on the fact that, uh, you know, now these women don't have to be alone now that they are you know now they're part of a community they're part of a larger thing it's a girl power all that stuff i i really i we're digressing we're moving too far down the series but this is a thing that kind of like so listeners this is what i am building to this is <laughs> this is why you're listening to the podcast now uh, it's not to hear me talk about these episodes it's to find out if five seasons from now, do I feel any differently about the end of the series than I do at this moment? But, um, but just, just to take it back to innocence for a moment, I think this is what's so, so gut wrenching about innocence is that on the one hand, losing angel means that she's lost her only ally who could get into fights and, and fight at her level. But she, and, and Cordelia and Xander and the others, they're aware of this as a major problem. But Buffy can't even get to that as a problem because she's going through her own difficulties of the fact that Angel was was not only her boyfriend, but also her first lover. Yeah. Okay. 
I'm, I'm, I'm centering myself back in these episodes now. Um, all, all of that aside, all of the future aside, um, I, I want to be clear that I adore these two episodes. I, I adore this series. Um, I've adored the series up to this point. I, I genuinely adore the series going forward. But these episodes are fantastic. Uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, again, whether I'm team Bangel or team spuffy or whatever um the chemistry that those two have is undeniable it's pretty remarkable when they get to to have those you know maudlin and melodramatic teen romance moments but they're still great both both the actors are great yeah although now i cannot help but watch and here i'm, I'm gonna ruin it from any of my listeners who have not <laughs> ever read any behind the scenes stuff or didn't previously know this i can't imagine there are many of you but just in case i have found out that uh sarah michelle geller and david boreanaz loved to prank each other and so whenever they had whenever they were doing a scene where they there was a lot of kissing or a lot of like you know uh, what kissing basically they would each try to just eat the most god-awful thing beforehand like raw fish or or jalapeno i don't even know what but like they would each go out of their way to just make the experience as awful for the other person as possible and so i can't help knowing that i can't help but watch all of the the heavy kissing scenes in this and just imagine all right so which one of them ate an entire can of tuna right before filming this scene or (laughs) whatever (laughs) It, 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 it's great because on the commentary for Innocence, Joss Whedon says, this is not a commentary where I tell you the wacky things that they do behind the scenes because they don't do any wacky things behind the scenes. Oh, well, I don't know. Somebody, somebody's lying. Or maybe they hadn't started at this point. But if they had started by this point, I will tell you. I already think they're both – their chemistry is great and they're they're great in their scenes together. But if – one of them had just eaten like a whole bunch of pickled eggs or something right before the scene. It doesn't show in the scene. Like not at all. So more power to him. Congratulations. Oh man. Um, so what else have we got? I think it's worth mentioning that they have a club called the, we hate Cordelia club. <laughs> yes. And Xander is the treasurer. Yes. <laughs> I, as someone who, who's the faculty sponsor of, of multiple clubs, I, I kind of wonder who, who, what what teacher is is sponsoring that club. <laughs> uh, there's there are probably a few teachers in that club. <laughs> there might be. Although they shouldn't they shouldn't admit to it. <laughs> well, yeah. Um. So we talked about Willow and Oz, and obviously we've talked about Xander and Cordelia, but in these episodes we get in, in innocence, we get uh, Willow finally like being forced to confront the truth that Xander is just like never going to be with her. And as much as I, I love Sarah Michelle Gellar's acting and she is great, especially in moments where she gets to like turn on the waterworks or whatever, when she gets to be emotional, she's, she's fantastic. Uh, Alison Hannigan is, a damn star in yeah. my opinion, even back then when she uh, was so young and, and did not have a lot of prior experience. Uh, but she is tremendous 
in any scene where she gets to demonstrate hurt feelings or a broken heart. Yes. And, and, and her line when they're talking after she says that, that he's treasurer of the, we hate Cordelia club. She says, it just means you would rather be with someone you hate than with me. Yeah. And that, that it went so quickly from, from a joke that I was laughing at to, to heartbreaking and, and she just played the scene so well. And and just like the scene when, when Willow and Oz are in the van, and she doesn't really want to be with Oz, but she kind of is pressuring Oz into something. And when Oz tells her that he's going to wait until she's into him, and then you can see on her face that she realizes she needs to be into him. He's the right one. I was actually going to say, I was going to describe it as he's going to wait until she's into him. And then he gets out of the car and the look on her face shows that as of that moment, she's kind of into him. Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. That was the moment that did it right there. And, and th- there was no line that tells us that it's just her face that tells us that. Yeah. Yeah. She's, just, just she's acting great. on her face. Yeah. And also, uh, in the scene where she's the one, she's the only one that figures out what is really going on with Buffy and like why she is so upset. And she, as it's dawning on her as she's figuring it out and Giles is still yelling, but Buffy, we have to go out and patrol. And she's like, shut up Giles. Yeah. It's like, not like a super powerful moment, but I just, I loved her delivery in that. And I imagine, um, we didn't get to see Giles's response to her saying that, but I just imagine that she delivered that line well enough that he shut up. And 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 to to preview something in the in the far future again, but but just briefly, Willow has to grow from someone who is really the weakest person in the school to someone who becomes super powerful. Mm-hmm. And and this episode shows some of that growth. She she's not super powerful at all, but She's she's making statements. She's making moves in in her life that are important and for a young a young girl in high school very difficult. Yeah, and and she's through all the fighting of demons and vampires, she's growing in her own life, and and it's it's fun to watch that as as you know bringing it back to a high school TV show as opposed to just a show where they kill vampires. <laughs> stuff is so great i love this show <laughs> what's great about it is that sometimes you just get into the this is a good show about high school it so happens it has vampires <laughs> uh, all right well i'm scanning through my notes here to see if there was any big stuff that we didn't really cover um i was going to ask you i was going to say some words about the sort of the parallels that they draw between Buffy and Drusilla in this, just by the fact that they're both having parties. They're both dating, uh, bad boy vampires. Yes. <laughs> Although for Drew, that's not quite as weird maybe as it is in Buffy's case. <laughs> uh, I guess they're both kind of dreaming about killing Angel. Although, I mean, yeah. Drew's not really dreaming, but Drew definitely doesn't like Angel until he comes back to being Angelus. I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but they're both forced into this position. They're, they're both examples of, of women whose lives got turned upside down by choices of men 
who didn't really care what would happen to these young women. Yeah. And 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 so it is interesting that even though Drusilla's evil and Buffy's good, their their main life choices of being, you know, the hero of good or the villain of evil, those choices aren't made by them. There's so many characters on this show that I love. Like when people ask, who's your favorite character on the show? And it's happened on a couple of these episodes. <laughs> I, like my go-to answer uh, is it, it's like a, it's a two-way tie uh, between faith and Wesley, like <laughs> hands down. But as yeah. we're talking about these characters, like spike is really, really, if faith and Wesley are tied for number one, spike is one and a half and Drusilla, oh. Drusilla is probably two. Yeah. And, and, and just going back to the theme of characters who transition from good and evil. And, and, and like you said, there's some black and white in the show. I, I'm a fan of black and white and I'm a fan of black and white because I think even though we're all shades of gray, we have moments of black and white and some have more moments of black and white than others. And so I like this, idea that there's so many characters who transition from good to evil you know angel does it without much choice spike does it with more choice but but you know looking towards the future and and, and faith and and andrew we get all these characters that kind of make these transitions and, and angel's just the most striking of them in these two episodes because it happens in an instant but in some ways that makes him also one of the least interesting because we like seeing how they change in their development over sometimes seasons. It still boggles me that he's the only character that is like a multiple personality. <laughs> I don't know why that line never comes up in another character, but anyways, I, I kind of think that it is the point that it, with this one, it, it, we, we get the shock of him changing, but with all the others, like, like spike, especially in faith and, and even Andrew later, we get to watch it happen. I think we want to watch it happen slowly and gradually and see how they go completely evil to completely good or back again to completely evil. I love that about this show. Um, all right. Well, unless there was anything like that we, just, that we missed. Just real briefly. Can we talk about the last couple of scenes with Giles and, and then, and then joy? Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Let's do that because I love that scene with Giles. Yeah, so the scene with Giles is great because Giles, there, there's, there, we often ask the question, there's so many women on TV and movies now, especially after Buffy, that we can point to and say, this is a feminist character. But there's so few men throughout the history of TV or movies that we can say this is a feminist man. And Giles is one of the best examples of a feminist man. And so this, this, is, this is a very feminist moment for Giles where Giles refuses to see even the possibility of blaming Buffy for what happened, even though what happened was not just that Buffy had sex at a young age. What happened is that Buffy's sex led to the creation of a monster. But Giles just refuses to accept any possibility of blaming her, and it's just a beautiful moment. It, it's a genuine like tearful, beautiful moments. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty famous for being able to cry over virtually anything. Pop culture always brings me to tears. But uh, <laughs> with, with this show, I have, even though I've never done a full rewatch from the beginning, I have 
I have seen these episodes in bits and pieces many times over the years. And so I just wouldn't expect to have as emotional a reaction as I have been having to some of these things. And that was a scene that like genuinely got me. Yes. Um, and, and it's, it's the delivery of both of those actors because, um, yes. I mean, Giles is going through his own stuff with the revelation that Jenny has been, you know, a traitor or whatever. Yeah. But he is all, he's there completely for Buffy and Sarah Michelle Gellar's, you know, bearing her soul right there. Uh, as she's expecting, she just expects him to be disappointed in her and her reaction when she finds out that he's not. And he says, you know, you'll never get all you'll ever get from me is uh, support and respect. Yes, exactly. And and then the, the final scene with, with Buffy's mom, Joyce, and up till this point, Joyce has not had a lot of scenes and, and she hasn't had a lot of, very significant roles to play or to, to show much range. And this is a small moment, but, but Buffy's when Joyce asks what she did for her birthday, Buffy says, I got older and Joyce says, you look the same to me. Mm-hmm. She's, she's, even though she's not as significant of a character right now, she's still playing that rock for Buffy to return to. She's still the mom. And it's it's a very important moment because Buffy is struggling so much, but at least she still has her mom to go home to. Well, and then the last line when Joyce asks her to make a wish, and Buffy says, "I'll I'll just let it burn," is it, it, it's a perfect way to end these two episodes. Mm-hmm. Man, this season, I, I've so I feel like season three. This is a debate I haven't bothered to have with any of my guests so far. <laughs> But um, I feel like maybe season three is uh, possibly the high watermark in terms of uh, season long storylines or whatever. But uh, season two is pretty great, especially in the back half. Like we we've we've just crossed the line here. These these lines mark the point where season two really becomes something special. Exactly. I agree 100 percent. So. Oh, I want to ask you really quickly. One, just one last question. Do you, yeah. do you remember, because I don't, do you remember, is it ever addressed again in future episodes, uh, that the people who were transformed in episode 206 Halloween, uh, that they retain the memories of the other identities? Because obviously that's very significant, not only in, in these episodes, but for Xander, but I feel like. Xander does this a few times where Xander occasionally gets to be the soldier boy because he remembers uh, Halloween. It's do we ever hear that that happened to anybody else? I don't have any memory of anyone, but Xander doing that. It just seems with that there, there had to have been at least one or two other people that would retain some, useful or interesting or possibly dangerous skills <laughs> left over from that. But yeah, I can't remember that ever being an issue. So, and, and I do think this is, this is a sense in which there, Xander is a bit of a struggle for, for the show because he was meant to be the boy who doesn't have powers, mm-hmm. but it kind of makes him a little useless. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I think that's it. Was there anything else? 
No, that was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, that was awesome. Uh, I, I always give my guests an opportunity at the end to sort of pimp whatever they've got, any projects they're doing. Uh, if, if you have an online presence and you want any of my listeners to stalk you, now is when I would let you do that. <laughs> I do want you to say some words about your uh, anarchist Joss Whedon project because I'm, I'm fascinated by that and want to know what that's going to be, so... Yeah, so that's that's a book my wife Mona Rocha and I are, are are working on, and we're really excited about it. We're 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 kind of doing an anarchist analysis of all the major shows, and 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 looking at the ways in which, especially the ways in which the villains tend to be structures more than individuals. The most obvious example being being the law firm Wolfram, Wolf, sorry Wolfram and Hart, but also. You know, th- there's a sense in which the Rossum Corporation, the villain in Dollhouse, the, the, we we argue that that Watchers Council is the, is the villain of Buffy. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're, we look at the various ways in which you can take anarchist critiques and use the shows to highlight what those critiques mean. And, and we're really enjoying re- writing the the book because we, we're watching all these TV shows again and just coming up with new ideas of of how to look at them from this particular perspective and, and it, you know, we're not arguing it's intentionally there, but we're making a case that it really helps. It it helps us understand anarchism a little better and the way in which they critique society. So we're enjoying it. That sounds, that sounds awesome. I can't, I cannot wait for that. Is there uh, is there anything else you can tell us? Uh, Is there a title that you've picked out yet or do you have a publication date or? I don't think we have a publication date yet, but we're, 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 we finished the first draft and, and so we're, we're working with McFarland press. So okay. we're, we're, we're hoping we're going to get it done pretty soon. Excellent. I cannot wait. I will absolutely be reading that. So, uh, James, thank you so much for being here. Uh, do you want to tell the listeners at home how they can find you online? Um, I'm, I, I suppose I, I don't have much of a web presence. I'm on Fresno State's philosophy department's webpage, and you can find my email address there if you want to email me anything. All right. Well, God bless you for not having an online presence. <laughs> I, well, thank you I so, so often that. wish that I did not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it often gets people in trouble. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again for being here, James. And I would absolutely love to have you back at some point. So we're going to have to make that happen. I would love to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh, And uh, thank you at home for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com. Or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. Seems a couple of other Buffy podcasts beat us to the punch. So uh, any kind words that you could spare would really help us stand out from that crowd, the crowd of potentials, as it were. Uh, If you have any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. Drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead. Or reach out to us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group because I love this word so much. The Facebook group is called conversations with conversations with dead people. (laughs) So please uh, join us there. My, my hope is that that is where the discussions we start on the podcast will continue in a larger forum on Facebook. 
Um, next week, I'm going to be joined by Johnny Ho, a longtime friend of basically every podcast I've ever produced over the years, and a very active fan and organizer in the Brazilian Buffy fan community. Uh, he's joining me. We're going to be talking about episodes 215, Phases, 216, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, and 217, Passion. Until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. <laughs>